This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. So I don't know about you, but I've got a pretty busy life. I'm married, I work, I've got kids, I've got all sorts of social engagements. I was, looking, I was just writing down some of the things I've been doing this week. So this week I've worked for about 45 hours, uh, including four evenings. I've been to a prayer meeting, I've been to a panto rehearsal, I've been to the pub with friends. I've been for six runs. Thanks. Because um, I, I was preaching today, I thought I'd better go and do some stuff. Uh, I've made lunch for the kids each day. I've taken the kids swimming and to choir and to synchro and to dance rehearsal. Um, I've helped write a script for the end of The Three Pigs. Um, I've answered questions on ancient Egyptians and we started to plan our scale model of Montserrat. Um, I've fixed Jesse's computer and my laptop. We should have picked up the car with its new engine. Um, I brought mouse poison and I've disposed, well, I've disposed of one dead mouse and I let Sarah do the other. Uh, we, we picked up the car. So, yeah, no, we've, um, uh, we've, I did the weekly shop in Lidl and in Tesco, one for the price and the other for coconut milk. I helped Sarah move office. I've drawn a map for Sarah's dad. I've tidied five broken plates. I've done some other tidying, probably not as much as I should. I've told the kids yes, no, maybe on multiple occasions. I've booked Euro tunnel tickets. I thought I would have booked Euro tunnel tickets by the time I wrote this, spoke. They're still not booked. Um, sorry? Um, yeah, I've Skyped my mum and dad. I've written a sermon. I've spent time with God. Um, I've applied for a new job. And today, it all starts again. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. I'm not bragging. We all have busy lives. Well, smallest violin. Um, I guess, hang on, it's the next paragraph. I guess I'm not the only person with a hectic life. Maybe you've just started uni and you wonder how um, there'll be any time for studying in amongst lectures and part-time jobs and all the importance of socialising. Maybe you're a new mum and you just hope that one day you'll get enough sleep. Maybe you're a teacher starting a new term and you wonder if between meetings and paperwork and planning and marking, you'll ever actually engage with any kids. Maybe you work in business and you wonder if between uh, dealing with customers and suppliers and local authorities and government regulations, you'll actually ever do any work. Life whizzes past us at this incredible rate of knots. And I think if we ever get a chance to stop, we wonder, what's it all for? Is there a plan? And will I ever find peace? This week, we're concluding our series on King David. And in two of his greatest psalms, we find some answers to these questions. Among all of David's exploits, one of, one of his greatest legacies are, are the, are the, is the book of Psalms. He wrote loads of songs praising God. 
And they're an incredible collection of personal reflections on life and on God, on pain, on joy, on highs and lows. And I encourage you to read the Psalms. They are remarkable pieces of writing in and of themselves. And, if, and they're remarkable to think that a man would talk to God the way David talks to God. And they do appear to be all about David and God on first reading. But the more I've read through them, the more you see that they're not, a lot of them are not actually about David. They're about someone who's still to come when David lived. Someone who has not yet come. And we're going to look at two of those Psalms today. Two Psalms David wrote for someone else. Has anyone ever heard of Psalm 23? Hand up, Psalm 23. Well done. No, Bob on. Can anyone recite Psalm 23? We walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Yeah, you were pretty there. Here we go, let's see. Yeah, it's an amazing psalm. And most of us know it. Even if you haven't been to church, you will have heard some bits of this psalm at some stage in your life. Whenever people in film or telly want to quote the Bible, they go for Psalm 23 because it's the bit they remember or know of once heard of. And in the busyness of our lives, we quite like it. We're quite quick to appropriate this psalm for ourselves. We like to think that God is like a shepherd looking after us, that he's guiding us, that even if life is terrifyingly difficult... We don't have to be afraid. We like to think that even as our enemies surround us, that God will provide for us. And that one day, we will go to a place free from hunger and thirst and pain. But this psalm is not written primarily about us. This psalm is not primarily our psalm. Controversial. This psalm belongs to one man. Guess where I'm going, probably. One man who lacks nothing, who is led beside quiet waters, whose soul is refreshed. One man who walks in paths of righteousness. There's only one man who can walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil. Only one man has the right to have his table prepared in the presence of his enemies. Only one man has the right to be anointed by God. Only one man has the right for his cup to overflow. Only one man is followed by goodness and love. And only one man is worthy to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Do we know who? Do we know where we're going? For this church. It's Batman. It's Jesus. And this psalm is Jesus' eternal song. This is the song of Jesus' existence. This is the psalm that describes his relationship with his father. Hey, I'd like this to be true for me. I'd like it to be true for Sarah, my wife, for my kids, for my friends, for my family, for for everyone. And the good news is that it can be. The good news is we can enter into Psalm 23, although it is not ours by right, it is his by right. We enter into it through Psalm 23. Psalm 22, sorry. Psalm 22 starts with these words. 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it concludes with these words. It is finished. Anyone know whose famous last words those are? Jesus' famous last words. These are some of the, he quotes from this psalm as he's dying on the cross. So why? And I think on first reading, it seems fairly depressing words. Imagine if you'd be John, Jesus' friend, watching your best mate covered in blood, straining for breath, hoping against hope that he would pull one more miracle out of the bag. That the horror that was unfolding before you, that it would just be ended, that the suffering of this innocent person would not be for nothing. Imagine you were thinking all that, and then he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because um, in Aramaic, the word my God is Eloi, and it sounds a bit like Elijah. Some people thought Jesus was calling out for Elijah to come and save him. But I wonder if you'd have heard him correctly, what you'd have thought. You'd have probably thought, well, that's it. He's finally giving up. He can't cope anymore. He blames God for his present predicament. And then as he breathes his last, he says this, it is finished. You wouldn't have thought, you, you, you wouldn't have thought Jesus had just completed some great task. You'd have thought that's it. All over. The man I left my business to follow has finally died. He's let me down. And it was all for nothing. It's finished. So why does Jesus use his final ounces of strength to say these depressing things? Is he really angry with God? Is he really giving up? The answer, of course, is no. He's singing another psalm written by David for him. He is living. He is living Psalm 22. You see, Psalm 23 is Jesus' rightful song. It's the song he deserves to sing for all of eternity. But Psalm 22 is the song he decides to sing. It's the song he had no need to sing. It's a song of terrible pain and suffering. But he exchanges one song for the other so that we might do the same. The parallel between what David wrote in 1000 BC and what Jesus went through on the cross some thousand years later is remarkable. And we're going to whiz through Psalm 22. It starts with this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. We start to see in these verses that something happens remarkable on the cross at Jesus' death called the Great Exchange. On the cross, Jesus is abandoned So that we can be delivered. Jesus cries out and gets no answer. So that when we cry out, we can be saved. Jesus put his faith in God and was put to shame. While we put our faith in God and find no shame. 
Jesus is not some sort of patsy in this. This is his choice. This is his hymn of praise to his father. He takes on this song so that we do not have to. If you're here today and you've ever felt abandoned or lost or ashamed, Jesus has gone to the cross so that you can feel found and saved and free from shame. It's the great exchange. And so Jesus' song on the cross goes on in verses 6 to 8. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. This is amazing words when you know what is said a thousand years later. Matthew records that the Pharisees say almost the same words, and you can read them there. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him. Now, um, if he wants him. It's the same phrases. It's the same words. And the Pharisees, they were the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They should have known what was going on. They should have known these verses by heart. And yet they don't hear themselves. They don't hear the words of David. The Psalms they had sung a hundred times. And they have no idea of the great exchange that is taking place in front of their eyes. They say, he saves others, let him save himself. What they don't get, what they can't see, is that the only way to save others is for him to sacrifice himself. What they can't see is that on the cross, he is saving all others by not saving himself. Sorry. Verses 12 to 13 say, Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions that tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. They're horribly, this is a horrible, horribly graphic description of what was happening to Jesus' physical body on his way to the cross. If verses 6 to 8 talk about what the religious leaders did to Jesus, then verses 12 to 15 describe what the Roman authorities did. When Jesus was arrested, he was tried in a kangaroo court and was sentenced to death by a coward called Pontius Pilate. Before Jesus was sent to the cross, he was tortured. The soldiers, like the bulls of Bashan, surrounded Jesus, beating and kicking him. Then they strapped him to a rack and whipped him until his back was torn to shreds like a pack of lions, tearing at their prey. But it doesn't end there. It carries on. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is so dried up like a potshed that my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me down in the dust of death. This is what David said a thousand years before it happened. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People gloat and stare over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. As you know, if you know anything about the crucifixion, Jesus was crucified and that meant he was nailed with big um, nails into his wrists and into his his ankles so that he could hang and, and his own body weight would eventually crush him to death. Not 
And it says here that his bones are on display. And that's not just because where it's all his skin stretched across his body that, that they can see his bones. Actually, his bones would have been on display from, from the whipping. When you whip someone's back enough, their back bones are on display. And we see that in John 19, 23, 24, that the soldiers gambled for his clothes. Imagine that. You're dying and they're in front of you, people gambling for your clothes. And it's what David said, and it's what happened. And so Jesus died on the outskirts of Jerusalem to be forgotten forever. Another radical who stuck it to the man and was crushed and destroyed. We know that's not how it ends. We see that in verse 19, there is a turning point. After Jesus dies in the grave, God heard Jesus cry. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Save me from the mouth of the lions. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. After Jesus died in our place, God's mighty arm starts to move. He starts to reverse what has been done, what's happened on the cross. All the torture, the tearing, the scorn of the oxen, the lions and the dogs is undone. And, and, we, and we see the song of the risen Christ as he overcomes sin and death and bursts forth into glorious life. And from there, Jesus starts his great mission. He says he's, he's going to fulfill his vow. And so we say that firstly, he tells his brothers, the disciples. When Jesus was resurrected, he went to them. He said, hey, I'm resurrected. That's Thomas saying, oh, you really are resurrected. You really were hung on a cross and you really have risen again. And he starts to tell them of his father's amazing grace, of the great exchange that took place on the cross, of all that Jesus has done for us and praise to his father. Psalm 22 carries on. In verse 23 to 24, we see that through the disciples and the Holy Spirit that Laura spoke about so excellently, on the day of Pentecost, Jesus tells the offspring of Jacob, that's the nation of Israel. He tells them that his death was not in vain, but that God rose him from the dead. And if we had time, we could look at this verse and and the preach at Pentecost, and you'd see the the overlap between what Peter says and what these verses say in Jesus' song of resurrection. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop with just a few Jews in Jerusalem. There's about 3,000. But it doesn't just stop there. And we read on that the gospel keeps going on. And I can't help but see in verse 25, Stephen, Stephen's martyrdom. And in 26, the conversion of Paul. And through Paul and others, the gospel goes out to the nations in verse 27 and 29. The book of Acts records that 30 years after Jesus' death, the whole, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, what he did on that hillside in Jerusalem had spread from that one place all across the known world. But it doesn't stop there. I love these verses. Because folks, it's us. We're the generations still to come. We're the people as yet unborn and the gospel has come down to us through the ages jesus great hymn psalm 22 comes down to us he concludes psalm 22 by saying 
He has done it. It is finished. When Jesus said that on the cross, it wasn't the cry of defeat. It was the cry of victory. He had done it. He had made a way for us to enter into the song, into Psalm 23. And one day, he will call the end of time. He will finish everything and we will say, he has done it. And he will say, it is finished. We read in Revelation, after this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude. This is what John, um, John sees at the very end of time. That no one could count from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. While Psalm 23 is a free gift to us, at Jesus' extreme expense, it is not given to all people. We must enter in. We must choose to take up Jesus' offer to cross from the abandonment and loss and shame of Psalm 22 into the joy of Psalm 23. And what we've seen today in Laura's baptism is a symbol of that great exchange that has happened in Laura's life. Jesus has sung Psalm 22 over her life, and she has entered into Psalm 23. As Christians, we go through the same process as Jesus in a far less painful way. Jesus died for our sins. And when we decide to follow Jesus, we die with him. We die to our own way of life. We die to living our way. And we follow his example of obedience to God. And we are risen with him. Baptism is the symbol of that death and rebirth. And now, because Jesus took up Psalm 22, Psalm 23 becomes ours. The lamb who was slain in Psalm 22 becomes the shepherd in Psalm 23. A guy called Phil Moore says that these two Psalms are so inextricably linked that we should see the shepherd as the blood drenched shepherd. I like to see him as many saw David as the shepherd king. In fact, Jesus says in John 19.30, I am the good shepherd. The shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Because the blood-drenched shepherd gave up everything for Laura, she will no longer be in want. Because the shepherd king laid down his life for us, we can lie down in green pastures. Because Jesus was so thirsty, his tongue filled his mouth, we can walk in living waters. Because Jesus' soul was torn in two, our souls can be restored. Because Jesus became unrighteousness, we have been made righteous. Because Jesus was forsaken by his Father, we have the Father's name. Because Jesus walked through the valley of death, we never need fear, death or sorrow. Because Jesus faced down evil and was out God, we can have God and fear no evil. Because Jesus was stripped and mocked in the presence of his enemies, we will feast in the presence of ours. Because Jesus had a crown of thorns jammed into his head, our head is anointed. Because Jesus drank the God, cup of God's wrath, the cup of God's goodness overflows for us. Because Jesus was cast out of his father's house, we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We have concluded our series on David and we've barely spoken about him. 
I've preached at Laura's baptism and barely spoken about her. And I don't believe Laura or David would have it any other way. Because everything is about him and for his glory. The blood-drenched shepherd, the shepherd king. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.